We're in Luke chapter 2. As we study through the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2 ought to trigger all kinds of Christmas memories. Maybe Linus reciting Luke chapter 2 in the Charlie Brown Christmas special, right? Lights, please. Does anyone know the true meaning of Christmas? Certainly we don't need to wait for Christmas to talk about the birth of our Savior. Aside from his death and resurrection, maybe the the second greatest event in the history of the world. And Luke records for us the historical account of the birth of Christ. Maybe studying Luke 2 in October will be good for us. Instead of December, we don't have to cut through all the trappings of the Christmas season, all the gift wrap and Christmas lights and Christmas parties. We can just focus in on this event as historical fact. Jesus Christ is a real person, born in history, grew up, did ministry, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. All recorded for us in this historical document. The Bible is a historical document. It's it's much more than that, but it's no less than a historical document. Luke intended his gospel to be a factual historical record of the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ to strengthen the faith of his friend Theophilus, but through God's providence to strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't myth. This is his historical figure. The Bible is also a spiritual document. We understand that as well. It has the power to, along with the Holy Spirit, to regenerate us and to transform our lives. No other book has the ability to transform us into the person of Jesus Christ. Last month, a a famous and influential evangelical Southern Baptist brother no doubt, no less, sadly, spoke at a conference and urged us all, pastors, Christians, to stop pushing the Bible on the culture. Disheartened to hear this. Yes, that is that was his message. Uh, because the, in a post-Christian culture, the Bible was pushing people away from Christ, pushing people away from the church. We needed to tailor our message to be more palatable, to the world. And so he said, just focus on Jesus, just focus on the resurrection. How do you focus on Jesus and the resurrection without the record of Jesus and his resurrection? And liberalism's already tried this approach, and the Southern Baptist Convention was um, delivered from liberalism. 
uh, in the earlier part of uh, last decade, and praise God that it is a conservative convention now. The seminaries mostly are conservative, Bible-believing, inerrancy of Scripture, and yet there are still some pulpits. I believe this pastor heart is in the right place. He wants to reach people for Christ, but he sees the Bible as a stumbling block. Well, the gospel is a stumbling block. The Bible says it's a stumbling block. The cross is foolishness to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jew. But the culture was far more pagan and corrupt and immoral in Jesus' day and in the day of the early church than our own culture. It was exactly the message of the Bible that cut through all that corruption and immorality. If, if there's no immorality, then there's no point in Jesus coming to die for us. And so the good news starts with God's holiness and our sinfulness and our deserving of judgment. And then the good news sweeps in. For the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. You're wondering who this guy is. It's no less than Charles Stanley's son, Andy Stanley, a megachurch pastor in Atlanta. He said that the early church thrived without the Bible and that the church didn't even have the Bible until the 300s. What was Jesus quoting then? Well, that's the Old Testament. Well, what are all these letters that were circulating? Just because it wasn't bound into one volume with Zondervan printed on the spine doesn't mean the early church didn't have the Bible. I can't believe he made these statements. And I went back to check, make sure he wasn't misquoted. And, and it is a correct quote from him. So please pray for Andy Stanley and pray for our Southern Baptist Convention leaders that they would come alongside him and help him see the error of his ways. What happens when you remove the Bible is you gut the foundation of our faith and then you just have a hollow faith and look at the mainline Protestant denominations today in Europe and in America. Churches are empty if you get rid of the Bible. It's a horrible strategy. Jesus himself said that he didn't come to abolish the scripture, but to fulfill the scripture. And Paul said to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. And so Andy says it's out of season, not our Andy. Andy Stanley, sorry, Andy, (laughs) says it's out of season. He may be right. It is out of season. The Bible says preach the word in season and out of season. We're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. That's what our culture needs. Reformation. Sola Scriptura. Sola Fide. In faith alone. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Sola Christo. In Christ alone. Earlier part of last century, Neo-Orthodoxy came in and said, Okay, well, we have the Bible and the Bible's good. But it's not historically accurate, and we don't know what parts are accurate and what parts aren't. But it doesn't matter because it's a spiritual book, 
and it becomes the Word of God when you believe. Well, which parts? When I believe, which parts? Because you just said some parts aren't true and some parts are true. So we reject neo-orthodoxy, and that's kind of what Andy Stanley is, is he's going down the road of neo-orthodoxy. Look, there is some facts in the Bible, but we know some things are not factual, so let's not get hung up over the miracles, except for the resurrection. That's the one miracle we could take to the bank. And if you get rid of all the other miracles, how do we know that miracle is factual? It, it's a slippery slope, and we're not going to go down that slope. Otherwise, if we're going to cater to the world, the world says this book is filled with myth, that Jesus, it wasn't a real character in history. And if he was, he's so, the actual Jesus is so hidden behind all these made-up stories, we'll never know who he really was. The Bible's not written as myth, it's written as history. C.S. Lewis, who the English chair at Cambridge said, I I know myth, I've studied myth, this book is not myth. Reminds me of that quote from Lloyd Benson, vice presidential debate, you know, back when debates were actually debates. And Dan Quell was the vice presidential candidate and he was very young so they were going to attack his inexperience. And we all knew Dan Quell was going to come back and say, yeah, well, JFK was young. And Lloyd Benson was ready for him. And he said, I knew Jack Kennedy. I worked with Jack Kennedy. You're no Jack Kennedy. Walked right into that one. C.S. Lewis. I know myth. I study myth. I write myth. The Narnia books, right? This is a myth. This is history, and we'll treat it as history. The question is, do you believe it or not? Do you believe in Christ or not? And so we're going to treat the Bible as a historical document this morning. And we're going to discover that Jesus wasn't actually born on December 25th. (laughs) Most of you knew that already. There's some kids who are perplexed but not crushed. (laughs) persecuted but not abandoned. He probably wasn't even born the year zero. Struck Struck down but not destroyed. You could still celebrate Christmas, kids. But I don't want the celebration of Christmas to undermine the historicity of our faith. At the very least this morning, I'll give you an apologetic for the birth of Christ. So somewhere down the line, someone doesn't come along and undermine your faith and say, you know, he wasn't even born December 25th, you you fools. You don't even know when your own Savior was born. December 25th was a date chosen by the Bishop of Rome in 336 A.D., after Constantine had made Christianity the official religion of the empire, in order to Christianize the pagan winter festivals that were going on. 
look, people are already celebrating. Let's replace the celebration with something to really celebrate. It wasn't a bait and switch. It wasn't replacing one myth with another myth. People were already celebrating. There were already parties. Um, They were fertility-type rituals. Winter's coming. Everything's dead. Everything's dying. We can't wait for spring to come. And the the pagan fertility gods, if, if we throw a celebration in winter, it'll assure that spring will come. And the only thing growing that time of year, evergreens, became the popular plant of choice. And the Christmas tree and the Christmas wreath were symbolic of fertility. I've just ruined your tree and wreath for you. But the point was, let's sanctify it. Let's Christianize it. Why should the world get the things God created and corrupt it? We don't have to give those things to the world. They're from God. They bring glory to God. Same with the arts. Why does the world get the arts? I like it when CBU comes and and sings. The arts belong to God. Sculpture and, and painting belong to God. Dance belongs to God. Not all of it, though. The, that which is lovely and righteous and good. You know the list in Philippians 4. And so the idea was, let's take this holiday, this pagan holiday, and Christianize it. And we'll take the symbolism of the pagan holiday and and change it to Christian symbolism. The BCAD calendar system wasn't even put into effect until 525 AD by a monk named uh, Dionysius. And horrible with Latin. Do you say both U's or is it like the two U's in vacuum? Is it exegus? Probably. It means uh, Dennis the Lesser. So, humble monk named Dennis. He came remarkably close to a correct date with very limited historical information. But he was off by a few years. So, um, and then again, December 25th, not, probably not, not the day. And when you think about it, December 25th, late December, late rainy, cold winter, horrible time for Caesar Augustus to declare a census. What, one of the things that made Rome so great was its roads. But the roads would be wet and muddy and sloshy and the ruts in the road would be useless that time of year. Shepherds watching over their flocks by night. Nothing's growing in December. The flocks aren't out grazing. Um, probably not late December. So, so when, when was it? When was the, the birth of Christ? We could piece together the historical facts from the Bible and maybe come up with a better date. So my aim this morning is to strengthen your faith by looking at the historicity of the Bible.
All right, so what have we covered so far? There was this priest named Zacharias from the division of Abijah, which served in the temple for the last two weeks of the fourth month of the Jew- in the Jewish religious calendar. How do we know that? It said in Luke chapter 1 that he was from the division of Abijah. You can look back to Jewish historical documents and see when that tribe was set to serve in the temple. Now, here's where it gets a little fuzzy. Those, those times and appointments set for the different priests, some people believe that after the first temple was destroyed and the second temple was built, maybe they had to completely redo the calendar, the schedule. But it seems to me that, it, that they would just use the same schedule. That they would use the same schedule. Knowing what we know about how seriously the Jews took the priesthood and, and took the schedules and, and all of that, they would stick to the old schedule. So if, if, if they did, and I'm assuming that they did, I know that's a big assumption, but walk with me here. That would put Zacharias serving in the temple in late June, early July. He gets the vision from the angel that your wife, your barren wife of old age is going to conceive. Now, unlike Mary, she's going to conceive the traditional way. So Zacharias needs to get to his wife. And so we would say that his wife, Elizabeth, conceived in early July. Because he had to serve in the temple for two weeks. So early July. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the Bible says, is when the angel visits Mary. It says directly, in the sixth month. People say the Bible's not relevant today. People, it's taken nine months to make a baby since the beginning of time. So do what we do. Let's count, right? July, August, September, October, November, December. So we're in, we're in December, late December, early January now. The sixth month would be January. Mary gets her visitation from the angel, and um, she doesn't need to see Joseph. The Holy Spirit conceives Jesus in her womb. Mary travels to visit Elizabeth, which is about a week's journey on foot from Nazareth. We read that in Luke one thirty nine. Upon entering the house, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit and says, How blessed is a child in, that should say in, not I. Next slide, please. Thank you. In your womb. So we know Mary is with child at this point. So Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in January. Count nine months from January. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months. Then she returned home right before John was born. I don't know why she didn't stay for the birth of John. What's interesting here is that that puts John's birth right around Passover in April. Jewish tradition states that Elijah will return during Passover. 
That's fascinating to me because John the Baptist is that Elijah, Jesus said. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now we get to Luke 2 and we read that Caesar Augustus ordered a census while Quirinius was governor of Syria. That actually happened. We have historical documents that this census took place, that Quirinius was really a governor of Syria. That's corroborated by extra-biblical historical sources. Not that those are better, but for the naysayers who say, look, you're... Your facts only come from this biased book. No, they don't. We have other historical documents. The most common being the Jewish historian Josephus, who was no fan of Jesus. And he wrote about Jesus. And lots of other history as well. Historical records place that event around late September, early October... Here we are, people. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Happy birthday, Jesus. And this makes more sense. Like I said, December uh, is cold and rainy, a horrible time to call a census. I mean, Caesar was, you know, cruel, but that would just be idiotic to call a census in the middle of winter. And again, shepherds wouldn't generally be tending their flocks at night late in December. Maybe there was unseasonably warm weather, but the late December date doesn't, doesn't work well for the birth of Christ. Works well if you want to convert a pagan celebration into a Christian celebration. What else is interesting is this is around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Or the Feast of Booths. And perhaps we have a clue from John in his gospel. John 1, 12 to 14. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become, a, to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. It's Jesus, the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Got a fly up here. Christmas fly. Yeah. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this word dwelt is tabernacled. Tabernacled. The, the word for the early temple. Remember the tabernacle? They would set it up, worship, tear it down, move in the desert. And God's Shekinah glory, that pillar of, of cloud and fire... Would, would appear at the tabernacle. The glory of God would rest between the wings of the cherubim on the lid of the ark. And God would tabernacle with his people in that form. But how amazing God became flesh and tabernacled among us. He made his dwelling with us. And now, if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit tabernacles inside you. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So, maybe an illusion there, that tabernacle, that, that Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Maybe. Just throwing it out there for you this morning. But certainly, uh, early October, late September, historically sounds like a better date than December 25th. So when my wife gets back from the beach retreat, she's going to be excited because her birthday was September 27th. So she's, she's probably closer to Jesus' birthday than you December 25th people. I hope I didn't just wreck somebody's If you want to think it's December 25th, you go right ahead. Because the point is that God doesn't actually give us the date. If if the date was important, he'd give us the actual date. And if Jesus' physical description was important, we'd have that. And we have no physical description of Jesus other than maybe Isaiah 53 where it says... There was nothing about him, no comeliness. Certainly he was compelling and exciting, and he taught like nobody had ever taught before. We know that. He was compassionate. But probably not movie star good looks. And no fanfare surrounding his birth. Not like Prince whoever over in England, you know, uh, Kate and... Not Eric. <laughs> Kate and William? Or Harry? William. A couple of people corrected me way too fast. It's, oh, it's William. <laughs> Harry's the punk young, younger brother. He's always getting into trouble, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, Prince William. Now, when that baby was born, it was like in the news for months and thousands showed up at the hospital and, you know, big deal. Royalty. In, in what's really not even a monarchy anymore. Um, but the actual king of kings is born, and the only ones there to witness it are some cattle and some lowly shepherds, the, the dregs of society. That ought to tell you something about God's heart. He gives grace to the humble. He brings down the proud. It gives grace to the humble. If you count yourself among the the nobodies and the has-beens or never-will-bees, hey, we're in good company, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Not many wise, not many impressive, not many strong. Oh, Humble babe laying in a manger. That really reveals to us God's heart. So what year, if if you care? Jesus was presented at the temple 40 days after his birth, as was customary for firstborn males. He was blessed by two prophets. We'll read that next week. Uh, Then Mary and Joseph were warned to flee to Egypt. We get that from Matthew 2. Um, After the... Magi came to give gifts. They flee to Egypt. They remain there until after Herod's death. And according to that historian Josephus, Herod died in the spring of 4 BC. So Jesus was probably born in 5 BC. Late September, early October, 5 BC. 
the calendar doesn't matter. What matters is that he came and he was born and he lived a perfect life and he died for us. And John says, as many as received him gave the right to become children of God. It's less important when Jesus was born than why he was born. But this is a historical document and we we don't want to tell the world that, yeah, well, it doesn't really matter when he was born because that makes it sound like we don't trust our Bible. We're not embarrassed at all by the historicity of the Bible. We believe it. We trust it. And nothing in here has been found to be inaccurate. And the world would say, well, yeah, the very first book, the first chapter is historically inaccurate. Scientists have proven now that the earth is really old. Well, a professor from my alma mater, UCLA, this week came out and said, let's be honest, our origins story in geology is no better than the Bible's. We both have our myths. And she said, we've been really uh, harsh towards Christians but they're not doing anything different than we are. I would say we are. We're basing our faith on eyewitness testimony. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, I wonder if she still has her job. I was going to follow up on that. You say that kind of stuff in academia and, and, and you're dismissed. If you don't play the game, and even if she had tenure, they'll find a way to get rid of her. But I have my new favorite quote now. (laughs) She said, our myth is no better than their myth. So then why was Jesus born? Let's listen to the historical document. In Luke one thirty one, the angel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So he's the fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. He will be the true and better David, the sinless king. The eternal king. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Her focus not on the fact that she's having her own child like a regular mother would have. She understands because of the angel's prophecy. And the Holy Spirit revealing to her, this will be like no other child. This is the one, the Messiah, my Savior. We love to sing that song at Christmas, Mary, Did You Know? And that 
mystery of the faith that we'll find out when we get to heaven. Did she realize all of what it would mean for her to raise this little boy, both as any mother would raise a little boy, but not like any other little boy, to be holding the creator of the universe. In fact, your own creator blows the mind. And did she know he would die on a cross eventually and she'd have to witness that? Luke 168 and 69, Zacharias, here's a father who's waited his whole life for a baby and probably had given up hope of ever having a child, he and his wife Elizabeth. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Look where his focus is. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. He goes on to talk about his own son, John, but the focus isn't on, I finally have a baby boy. It's, he will be the prophet of this one who is greater than he. All the excitement on the person of Christ and what he represents, what he's going to accomplish, this salvation the scriptures have spoken of since Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman that would crush Satan's head. The angels came to the shepherds and they announced, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Again, no no date. It's the purpose that matters. Let's go back to, to John one and and kind of finish that whole quote in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god that that word is logos in the greek logos and into the greek philosophers the logos was the logic the power the that held the universe together and gave the universe uh meaning and how everything all fit together. And John borrows that word, and he says, in the beginning was the logos. And the Greek would say, amen. But you see, the Jew would say, I I see what he's doing there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. In the beginning was the logos. He's equating the Greek logos with the God of the Old Testament. And then he goes on to say, and the word was with God. And then this statement that just blows us all away. And the word was God. This, this is no ordinary boy. And he's, he's not just Messiah. He's God. He's not a superman. He's God. He's not a better version of you and me. He's God. But he's still man. 
the incarnation, the, want a good theological term, the hypostatic union. They use those big words so they can justify charging you a lot of money for your, your degree. <laughs> the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He made all things. He's the Creator, Jesus. The Creator came and walked among us. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, things of the Spirit, the natural man can't comprehend. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, that could be you. That could be you this morning. You could be one of the As many as received him, as many as believed in him, and as many as believed this historical record, but not just believing the facts of the historical record, but believing, placing your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not less than the facts. It's the facts, and he really is God, and he can be personally my God. I can have a relationship with, with God through faith in Jesus Christ. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. You don't have to be the he came to his own and they did not receive him. You could be as many as received him. He gave the right to become children of God. You could be a child of God this morning. If, if you aren't already, you can be a child of God. You don't need to wait for December 25th or Easter. You can receive Jesus Christ this morning and be forever a child of God. You will be born again. Not of blood, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. God will cause you to be born again. You will have new life inside you. New desires. New purpose. New meaning in life. A new future. New hope. New everything. Behold, old things are passing away and new things are coming. And the Word became flesh. That's probably the most shocking statement in all of John 1. The Word, the Logos, became flesh. No, wait. God's not human. 
And the Logos is not human. And so both the Jew and the Greek would say, time out. The what? God became flesh? The word became, Logos became flesh? No, we're the, we're the finite. That's the infinite. That's the boundary. But that's the problem is there was this infinite chasm between us and God and how kind of God and how gracious and loving to bridge the gap we could never bridge ourselves. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Was born just like the rest of us, grew up, had a childhood, grew in knowledge in stature among men, but not like us. Divine, perfect, sinless. No fear of man. No doubts. No unholy desires. So I only do what the Father reveals to me to do. So like us, but not like us. Like us in in every way so that he could be our substitute on the cross, but not like us so that he would be the pure, unblemished, spotless lamb. And we sang this morning, have you been washed by the blood of the lamb? Which if you've just stepped foot in a church for the first time in your life was a crazy way to start your journey of faith. Bunch of people singing and clapping, have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? Well, that's what that means. He's, he's the perfect sacrifice and his blood covers our sin. And um, we all know how hard it is to get blood stain out of our clothes. But ironically, you can be washed white as snow with this blood. So we're not crazy. We're not crazy, but uh, crazy for Jesus. Crazy about Jesus. John testified about him, cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Whoa, John the Baptist said, He existed before me. How is that possible? I guess that's the part that Andy Stanley wants us to ignore because it doesn't make sense to the world. But that's the part that stops us in our tracks. And Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Anyone want to sing joy to the world? I tried to get the worship team up your first service, and they said I should start, but we would start on a note that is completely foreign to all of you. <laughs> so let's pray in, in, in that way. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, your Son. By his blood, we are washed whiter than snow so that we can boldly approach your throne of grace and receive grace upon grace upon grace. 
Thank you for the Bible, this historical document that tells us everything we need to know about the world and the universe and history and life and godliness. It is all sufficient. Forgive us for doubts. Forgive us, Lord, for attempting to fulfill the Great Commission in any other way than what is commanded and revealed in Scripture, for thinking we can sugarcoat and alter the gospel to make it more palatable to men. May your gospel break through the hardened hearts of mankind and flood hearts with light and truth and the glory of the gospel. Thank you for putting the gospel in our clay pots, our chamber pots, Um, these earthen vessels, Lord. Thank you that we have the hope of the resurrection and glorious resurrection bodies. But we understand, Lord, that you've entrusted us with the gospel, so you will receive all the glory and man will receive none. And so thank you, Jesus. Lord, we don't know the exact day you were born. It's not as important as believing that you were born and believing why you were born. And so I pray for any here this morning who has not come to that conclusion that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, that they would receive him today for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. To the glory of God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.